You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 76. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I pray that all is well with you today. On this episode, I want to read something from Teddy Roosevelt, one of my personal favorites as far as presidents and just men go. And it's from a 27, I believe it's a 27 or 28 page speech that he spoke at the Sorbonne in Paris on April 23rd, 1910, I believe. And in that speech is the man in the arena quote that many of us are familiar with. It's been memed probably a million times by now. But the thrust of the speech and the reason I want to discuss it today is about cynicism that had taken root in Roosevelt's generation and how he chose to fight against that cynicism that encroached upon his society. And the way in which he chose to address that cynicism is by speaking of courage, about the courage to create rather than to tear down. Cynicism can only tear down. It can only diminish, destroy, deconstruct, delete, cancel. Courage creates, it builds up. It plants a tree that will bear fruit for five or six or 70 generations after the person who has planted it is dead. Courage is more difficult than cynicism, which is why cynicism is so popular and why it is so easy to adapt and to adopt in our lives, especially, in my opinion, nowadays. Cynicism has become the prevailing cultural ethic in the United States, possibly in the world, because of the internet and social media and the spread of immediate information across networks. And courage it seems, is in short supply. There is a lack of courage in the churches to stand up, to put our faith in God's word, and to trust, as David says in Psalm 54, that he is our help and our support. He is our strength. He is our stronghold. That he will vindicate us. And so the churches have become cynical. Our homes have become places where cynicism is allowed to thrive and grow. Because by and large, most people I know are cynical about their past, about the present and what's happening or not happening, and about the future. Because as I noted, it's very easy to tear down. It's very easy to go negative, to cancel and delete, to treat others as if they are dead too criticize and point fingers and judge and scoff at others who do it different than you, speak differently than you, live their lives differently than you. And I think especially then, this is why there's such a lack of courage culturally nowadays. There's a lack of courage in the churches. There's a lack of courage in the halls of political power. There's a lack of courage in the court systems and the judicial system. There's a lack of courage in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. It seems to me wherever I go, whoever I speak to, no matter what class they are, no matter where they fall within the strata of our society, there is an abundance of cynicism and cowardice. But what is immediately recognizable to me because I'm listening for it, I'm looking for it, I'm praying to find it. There's a lack of courage. There's a lack of motivation to create something instead of tearing people and things down. In fact, as Roosevelt said, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. I've talked about this before on the show, that because of the way that I choose to live, those around me 
who claim to care about me, are concerned about my welfare, will say that I'm too healthy, that I am too committed to training, that I am overly zealous and I need to act my age. I need to stop fighting, need to stop training so much, need to stop committing my life to the teaching and the training of combat martial arts because it's not healthy. It's not good for me. It's good to have hobbies, but it's not good to become obsessed, even addicted to martial arts. My grandma said the same thing when I came back from the mission field (laughs) and announced that I was going to seminary to become a pastor. My grandmother said to me, it's good to be religious, but you're overdoing it. Those are her actual words. Which is ironic because on her deathbed, the person that she asked to talk to was me. And I was in Colorado Springs at the time, so I talked to her on the phone. And my aunts and my mother and others who were in the room with her put the phone on speakerphone so that I could preach not just to her, but to everyone about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. It's because she had taken a cynical approach to religion, as she called it. And therefore, she saw me within the context, within the perspective of that cynicism. And yet on her deathbed, when she needed to hear the gospel, when she needed hope, she called me because she needed my courage and she needed my boldness to stand up in the face of death and shout it down in the name of God. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There is no pride in cynicism, but many feel a twisted sort of pride in their cynicism, as Roosevelt notes. And they confine themselves almost exclusively to their own detriment, to only being critical, only tearing down, only seeking those that they can delete and cancel. Because misery loves company. The reason that a cliche is a cliche is because it's true universally, most of the time. It's like Maya Angelou, famous poet. She talked about courage in the face of evil. I think she wrote, there's nothing so tragic as a young cynic because it means that person has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. Think about that. A person that becomes a cynic when they're young when they're in their teens or when they first get to college. And then they're encouraged in that cynicism by their peers, by professors, by people that they look up to. They consider them mentors and authority figures. Those people encourage that cynicism. Culture encourages that kind of cynicism. You just listen to post-pop 80s music. (laughs) Go listen to Morrissey. But Maya's... Angelou's point here is that you go from knowing nothing to believing nothing. And believing in nothing is what creates nihilists and fatalists. It's what creates cynics. You become like the food critic in Ratatouille. So how do we prevent this? Well, it's too late. Unfortunately, no one heeded Roosevelt's advice in the speech. No one took his courage and boldness to heart and sought to proliferate it nationwide, society-wide, worldwide. Cynicism prevailed. At the time, Roosevelt may have won the battle with his speech, but he lost the war. And so we now are experiencing a cultural tragedy. As we witness the end of society, the end of civilization in the West, and the beginnings of a new society that is located in the East, as we watch... Western governments succumb to authoritarianism and totalitarianism as we stand by complacently while corporations and governments form these fascistic systems of governance. The seeds for this were planted decades ago. They're the seeds of cynicism and criticism. People grew up believing in nothing. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in their family. They don't believe in their community. They don't believe in their society. They don't believe 
immorality or ethics. They don't believe in God. They believe in nothing. And therefore, they know nothing. They believe nothing, and they become nothing. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah is told by God that the people worship nothing, and therefore they have become nothing. Because theologically, you become what you worship. And if you worship what is not a god, you are worshiping nothing. And by worshiping nothing, you become that thing. You grow to fear, love, and trust nothing. And in that fear, love, and trust of nothing, you yourself become nothing. And that's what I see happening in the churches. That's what I see happening in our society, in politics, in academia. I see it everywhere. We are a nothing people. So I don't think we can prevent this tragedy from happening in our culture. The poison has already reached our heart. This is not a just and democratic society. This is no longer the United States of America. We are no longer a constitutional republic. And the root, the seed that grew up and produced this bitter fruit is cynicism. And yet, one of the reasons then that cynics do not teach history, and also another reason why Western society is collapsing in on, in on itself is because we are experiencing the end of history. History is no longer taught, and where it is taught, it is being revised and rewritten to fit a current political ideological narrative. So you can't even trust the history you're being taught. And you're discouraged from grounding yourself in the historical narrative and doing research into the past because, God forbid, you study history and learn we've been here before. Politicians have done this before. Science has made these claims before. Society has fallen victim to cynicism and collapse before. And we wouldn't want people to awaken to these facts and then do something to change them. Because change for the better requires courage. And the last thing that an authoritarian system of governance wants is for people to have courage and boldness because it's contagious. So Roosevelt, he takes the podium at the Sorbonne in Paris, April 23rd, 1910. The title originally was citizen in, or citizenship, I'm sorry, citizenship in a republic. Later included under the title Duties of the Citizen, in the 1920 volume, Roosevelt's Writings, which I believe is actually a part of the public record now, so you might be able to actually access this online. But before we dive into the meat of his speech, and it's 28 pages, so obviously I'm not going to read all of the speech or even a majority of it today on the podcast, but Caitlin Moran Another writer commented that cynicism scours through our culture like bleach, wiping out millions of small seedling ideas. Roosevelt calls this a queer and cheap temptation. Cynicism, that is. A queer and cheap temptation. He writes, The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect, than he who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort, which even if it fails comes to second achievement, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work, which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness, which will not accept contact with life's realities. All these are marks, not as the possessor would feign to think, of superiority, but of weakness. They mark the men unfit to bear their part painfully in the stern strife of living, who seek in the affection of contempt for the achievement of others to hide from others and from themselves in their own weakness. The role is easy. 
There is none easier, save only the role of the man who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. There's enough in that one paragraph to spend four episodes on. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. People take a kind of twisted pride in their cynicism. They confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves would not even dare to attempt. That's why they tear others down. I've talked about it many times before on the show. Everybody that we encounter during the day is a mirror that God holds up to us that shows us the truth about ourselves. For the good and for the bad. For the constructive and for the deleterious. There are things about ourselves that when we encounter certain people, they draw something out of us that we're not proud of. And we don't want to look at it because it's ugly and twisted and deformed. But it's us. We don't like to see ourselves in that way. Especially if we're not prepared. And then there's other people you encounter. And you engage with them. And they bring out of you what is beautiful and good and charitable and kind. And that usually is how we pick and choose our partners, our friends, our teammates, our brothers in arms. We tend to hang around and surround ourselves with those who bring out the best in us. And we tend to avoid those who bring out the worst. This is the beauty of jujitsu. Jujitsu is a mirror. The mats are a mirror. And they tell you the truth about yourself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And those who can withstand the truth, those who can thrive in that truth, those who can grow and become stronger and better themselves with that truth, become black belts. They become true fighters, true warriors, who embrace and embody that warrior spirit of courage and bravery, integrity and dignity, wisdom and courage, charity, justice and kindness. But those who cannot stand to see themselves, the truth about themselves, usually don't make it past blue belt. And they definitely don't make it past purple belt. There is no more unhealthy being, Roosevelt says, no man less worthy of respect than he who neither really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty. Isn't that the truth? Tear down the statues of the great and lofty men because they're great and lofty and they remind us that we are not. Destroy everything that is beautiful and good because it reminds us that we are not. The great adventurers, the great leaders, the great innovators and creators, they must be deleted and canceled. Why? Because I am none of those things and I don't want to try to reform myself and remake myself into one of those men or women. I have no lofty ambitions. I have no goal that is greater than myself. I have no cause greater than myself that I can join. I am a victim of circumstance. I am an accident of the universe. I am miserable. I am unworthy of love. I am weak. I am cynical. I am contemptible. I am everything that you are not, and therefore I must shatter the mirror that is you so that I am not reminded about the truth of myself, my situation, and the fact that I can choose to change it anytime I want, that I actually do have a choice. I do have agency. I do have the capability and the ability and the skills and the gifts to better myself, to grow, to become the person that I hate. Because in the end, they don't really hate the courageous and the bold. They don't hate the wise and the creative. They don't hate the innovators. They resent them for showing them the truth, for revealing the truth about themselves to themselves. And more often than not, it's that green-eyed monster envy that motivates and drives them forward. Why burn down cities? Why destroy small businesses? Why alienate and vilify family and friends? Why see yourself as a victim and blame everybody else for what happens to you? Why not take responsibility for your choices and their consequences? Well, because you're weak. Because you're a coward. Because you're not willing to do what's necessary 
to overcome and defeat your own cowardice and weakness. So why not just destroy bravery and courage? Why not destroy what is beautiful and good? Why not destroy what is right and true? Why not reject and deny reality and try to rewrite the rules of reality? Isn't that easier? Is it not easier to burn something down than to rebuild something? One of the tendencies, excuse me, that is particularly troubling about society at present is that there are a lot of people on social media who mistake cynicism for critical thinking. And I am tempted by it every day because I consider myself a critical thinker and yet I am just as tempted by cynicism as you. And so what happens? Well, you confuse cynicism for critical thinking, which produces this kind of unconstructive and lazy attitude that is actually destructive. It tears down. It doesn't build up. Anecdotally, I've seen, and I include myself in this to a lesser, I didn't go to the extremes that others have, but I've done it. When you're a young pastor and you receive your first call or maybe your second or even the third, depending on how fast they happen, you walk into the church and you have the, the code. You've got the secret sauce. You've got the recipe to save this church, not just the congregation that you serve, but the church, big C church. And if everyone would just listen to you, if the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, if others would just listen to you, they would understand almost immediately how well-equipped you are, how wise and knowledgeable you are, how innovative and original your ideas are, that we could fix the churches, we could save the churches, we could get people to stop leaving, we could get people to stop apostatizing. Our churches could be full every Sunday. The offering plates could be overflowing with money every Sunday. Everything could be great and glorious if you would just listen to my ideas. The same ideas that every generation of new pastors has brought into their churches that result in the same destructive, cynical outcomes. Because when no one listens to your ideas, when no one takes you serious, when others remind you that generations of pastors before you have had the same thoughts and the same attitude, which can't be possible because no one could be as good and as well-equipped as you to solve this problem. Sound familiar? Sound like our society at present? What happens? Well, because no one listens or you're told, yeah, it's been tried before and failed miserably every time. You become cynical. You become angry and embittered. Because you know it may have been tried in the past, but not the way that you're going to do it. It may have looked similar. It may have sounded similar, but it's definitely not going to be as good and effective and constructive and ultimately institutional saving as your ideas. If people would just listen to you, if someone would just elect to put you in charge of the situation, this could all be fixed in no time. But of course, these people are fools. They're dumb. They're power mad. That's why they won't listen to you. It has nothing to do with the fact that they might be wiser than you, more knowledgeable than you. They've been around the block a couple more times than you. Couldn't have anything to do with the fact that, as I noted at the beginning of this, you know nothing, and therefore you believe nothing. It could be that you're not a critical thinker. You're a cynic. And when you look at the church, you say to yourself, this is a problem and I can fix it. I've got the solution. Well, that's the excuse for socialism too. It's just never been done the right way before. It's how parents function a lot of the times. I'll just do what my parents did or do the opposite of what my parents did. Well, I didn't like my boss, so I'm going to run the company differently than my last boss. Or I'm going to innovate in my company and I'm going to fix this company and I'm going to make it a Fortune 500 company because no one has ever had the ideas for rebuilding the brand like I have. That's cynicism, actually. That's not critical thinking. It's lazy, it's unconstructive, and it's destructive. Sometimes the best thing to do is come in, shut your mouth, open your ears, listen to your elders, your betters, guys that have been around the block a couple times, and learn. And eventually, if you stick around and you're humble, 
and you demonstrate an aptitude for learning, and you're eager and excited to be a part of the team, you'll get promoted, and you'll be seasoned, and you'll mature within the company, within the institution, within the group. And then, maybe, your ideas will have some merit to them. Listening to friends of mine who've served in different branches of the military, specific branches in particular, Special Forces, Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, so forth and so on, one of the first things that I'm, I, I hear throughout all of their stories is I came in with this idea that I was an ass kicker and that I was special. And then I found myself in a room full of ass kickers and special people and realized, oh yeah, around here, that's the status quo. And amongst ass kickers and special people, I'm not the biggest ass kicker. I'm not even in the top 10 of people in the room that are ass kickers. And as far as exceptional elite people, I'm at the bottom of the heap. I'm nothing to them. I'm nobody. I have no experience. I don't have their wisdom or their knowledge. And therefore, I learned very quickly, shut your mouth, open your ears and learn. And when they speak to you, that's when you speak. When they tell you to do something, that's when you do something. That's the way forward. That's how you build something that will last. So then Roosevelt continues with an, with an eye to those lazy critics that I was talking about, with those cynics that are destructive. He calls them the dead weight of society, which is another reason that our society is imploding because of the weight of these critics, these lazy critics, these destructive cynics. They have the mass of a dwarf star and they are sucking everything in, like pulling the stopper out of the drain and letting all of the water get sucked down into the pipe. The cynics who dominate our society at present are a dead weight. And they have increased exponentially the critical speed at which our society is eroding and being destroyed. So Roosevelt then says famously, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The man who does nothing cuts the same sordid figure in the pages of history, whether he be a cynic or a fop or voluptuary. There is little use for the being whose tepid soul knows nothing of great and generous emotion, of the high pride the stern belief, the lofty enthusiasm of the men who quell the storm and ride the thunder. Why are people afraid to believe in a higher power? Why do people refuse to believe that there's a God, a creator, a savior? Why are people afraid to study the heroes of legend who were brave, who were courageous, who were the doers of great deeds, who even in victory knew the bitter taste of defeat because they lost their brothers in arms on the battlefield that day. Why do we not seek to embrace the example of those men who fought so long and so hard against such overwhelming odds that at the end of the day, their hand had become cramped and trapped around the hilt of their sword. And that the dried blood on the blade and on the hilt encrusted around their hands and made it impossible to let go. Why do we not study in our public schools the way of Bushido that Natobia Nazo detailed? 
why do we not embrace a warrior culture or at least a warrior ethos within our culture? Why do we not seek to emulate the innovators, the creators, the entrepreneurs, those who dare to dream, those who set their ambitions so high, those who follow a cause greater than themselves? Why? Because it's easy to be lazy. It's easy to be critical and cynical. It's easy to tear down. It's easy to point to the man on the mats, in the cage, in the ring, in the arena, and say, well, just get up. Can't believe you got knocked out. How many fights have you won? I think it's very interesting in American culture. Others have talked about this, but it's something that has really hit home of late. In other cultures like Thailand, they don't ask what your win and loss record is. They ask, how many fights have you had? Because what makes a warrior a warrior isn't his winning record versus his losing record. There are many, many great fighters in Thailand who have losing records, who have fought hundreds of times. And yet they kept fighting. They kept getting in the ring. Why? Because they weren't fighting for wins. They were fighting for their lives. They were fighting for money for their family so they could feed them. They were fighting for honor and respect. They were fighting for themselves and for something greater than themselves. They were fighting for their ancestors, all those who came before them that made it possible for them to be in that ring at that moment. They fought for their God. They are the men who quell the storm and ride the thunder. And when I read about them, ever since I was a little boy, my old world hero stories, which I still have on my bookshelf to this day, by the way, are they fantastical stories? Of course they are. Are they mythical? Yes. Are they based in any kind of historical fact? Some of them. But it doesn't matter to me because that's not the purpose of the stories. These are not journalistic recounting of the events. These are the stories of heroes, of bravery, of valiant knights fighting against unbeatable numbers of enemies. It's about Roland who held the pass. It's about the Green Knight and what Galahad had to learn. It's about shepherds who killed mighty warriors with a sling and a stone. It's about normal people who did extraordinary things with the help of God. They were the men who quelled the storm and rode the thunder. And those are the men and the women who have always inspired and gotten me excited. Maybe that's just the way I'm wired. There's just something about those stories that to this day, I'm doing this podcast. And if you look at it in the grand scheme, when I was five or six years old reading those hero stories, well, what am I doing right now? I'm doing the same thing I've been doing since I was five or six years old. So what has really changed? I never really thought about that before until this moment. It's kind of overwhelming. Do we want to be the kind of people that are remembered? Do we want to be the kind of people that live on after we die in the stories and the tales of others who knew us and those who didn't know us? Or do we want to go down in bitter, cynical defeat, swallowed up by our graves, a shovel full of dirt thrown over our bodies, never to be remembered again? Do we want to be a cynic or a fop or a voluptuary? You can look up what that means. <laughs> it's not very politically correct nowadays. Do we want to be tepid souls? Do we want to accept complacency as the status quo? Do we not want to be a great generation? A generous generation? 
a proud, strong, lofty generation full of enthusiasm who build great things, who create great things, who produce great things that will last? Do we want to be the men who quell the storm and ride the thunder? Do we want to be the women who stand in the breach and fight for generations to come? Who do we want to be? And what must we do to become that person? And as an afterthought, are we willing to sacrifice what's necessary to become that person? There are plenty of people who will tell you, don't. Don't even start. Don't even attempt it. Don't even think about it. But what Roosevelt was saying in that speech, 27 pages of that speech, is that the choice is yours. You know, in my ecosystem, I put it this way. You are not entitled to be here. You don't deserve to exist. God chose to make you. He chose you to make you, specifically you. That is a gift. Now, what you do with that gift, that might be a different conversation, but your very existence on this planet at this time is a gift. God made you. He redeemed you. He offers you new life in his name. He makes everything new each day. For me, that emboldens me. That is the mirror that is held up to my face every day by my wife, by my children, by my church, by my teammates, my coaches, my society even. And what I see sometimes crushes me. The truth about myself crushes me. At other times, it inspires and motivates me. And it creates this lofty enthusiasm that Roosevelt talks about. To be completely honest, since that's what I strive for, transparency in all things, lately, it's been a heavy load for me that I've had to carry. I don't feel connected to God. I don't feel like I have a relationship to my God right now. I question myself constantly. I don't want to be strong. I want to sit down. I want to rest. I don't want to have to carry this burden anymore. Because in my house, I am the weather vane. My personality sets the tone for my whole family. If I'm angry, it just sets everybody off. Now everybody's grumpy. They're chirping at each other. They're nipping at each other. They're picking at each other. They're yelling and fighting with each other. When I'm up, when I'm enthusiastic, when I'm excited, the house is that way. And yes, you could refer to it as codependent, however you want to you know, label it with a psychological, psychoanalytical term. But the fact of the matter is, my personality is the dominant personality in the house. So how it goes for me is usually the temperament of the house. And there's just days I don't want to be the anchor. I just want to sit down. I want to quit. I want to surrender. Let somebody else take over. Let somebody else be strong for a change. Let somebody else carry this burden. Because I don't want to. I don't feel that God is there for me. I don't feel that contact with him right now. When I get up and preach and I teach as I just did an hour ago, I'm saying what I'm expected to say. I'm speaking within the office that I've been called to serve in. Do I believe what I'm saying? I do. Do I not believe what I'm saying? Yes. I don't believe it either. I believe both at the same time. I cling in hope and faith to what I'm reading, what I'm praying, what I'm preaching. But simultaneously, I question it because I don't believe that God is involved in my life currently. I feel like I've lost the relationship with him. I feel disconnected from everything, actually, and everyone. I feel like I'm in the world, but not connected to anybody or anything in the world, if that makes any sense. 
And so every day I have to get up and fight. I have to fight to be the husband my wife needs me to be, the father my children need me to be, the coach and instructor that my teammates need me to be, the pastor that my church needs me to be. Every one of those things I just listed, I have to fight to be that person because I don't want to be that person right now. Like I said, I just want to sit down and quit just, just for a second. Just, I need a moment. That's all. And what I struggle with simultaneously, and I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. This isn't a pity party. I'm not crying into my cornflakes, so to speak. I'm just trying to be honest with you about where I'm at and why I chose to read this today. I asked my 18-year-old son the other day in the car, did you ever notice that the people that refer to themselves as my friends, whenever they come to the house, they come to me for advice and they look to me to tell them how to live? My son, without even missing a beat, just turned and goes, that's because they want you to lead them, Dad. You're their leader. They're not your friends. You're their leader. And I couldn't believe, (laughs) I was shocked actually, at how remarkably accurate his statement was and how clearly he saw it. And then the after conversation was, that's who you've always been for people, Dad. You've always been their leader. That's who you are. And again, I recognize that these moments come in waves and then they go. But they come and they're like a storm. And when they come over the top of me, there's nothing I can do about it except write it out and trust that this has happened before. And that's going to happen again. I'm going to be tempted to be weak. I'm going to be tempted to sit down and quit and surrender, not show up for other people, to worry only about myself, be selfish, self-serving, take a cynical view of myself and my life. I know this. I've been through it before. Maybe you have too. And knowing it will pass doesn't make it better. Not for me anyways. There's no comfort in that for me. Because I have to ride the storm out. I have to suffer the thunder and the lightning strikes of life. The temptation to not believe. The temptation to not trust. The temptation to view myself as being completely alone and isolated and disconnected from everybody and everything in the world. But I've always felt that in some way, shape, or form since I was a little kid. And it's always proven to be true. And maybe, again, you've gone through that yourself. But I also recognize the reason is because I choose not to quit. (laughs) I choose not to surrender. Because often I can't because there's people around me who force me to keep marching forward who come to me and say, you're the leader, lead. You're the one who calls the play, so call it. You're the one who's got the plan. Tell us, where do we go? What do we do? And in those moments where I am swallowed up by negative emotions, I don't feel great, I don't feel generous, I don't feel strong, I'm not proud or confident of my abilities or my achievements. My enthusiasm is a smoldering wick. The storm comes, the thunder comes, the lightning strikes, and I suffer it because I know the alternative. When someone criticizes me for losing or I explain why I lost a fight, I have to remind myself this person has never fought before. They've never stepped on the mats. They've never gotten in the cage or the ring. They've never been choked unconscious. They've never been knocked out with a punch or a head kick. They've never had another human being try and snatch their soul away from them. And therefore, their judgment of a performance that they didn't even see because they weren't there for the fight has the value of nothing behind it. They sit on their couch and they watch people from afar and they tear them down because they are weak and they are cowardly and they are cynical. And rather than acknowledge the truth about themselves, they simply seek to destroy everything that reminds them 
of who they are in actual fact. And I trust that in these moments when I feel weak and I want to quit and surrender and I want to give up and I feel disconnected from God and everybody else, it's a storm. It'll pass. It's necessary that I go through these because these strengthen me and they force me to confront the negative about myself. They force me to confront the cynic in my own heart. And so I wrestle with myself. And I seek to quell the storm that rages in my heart and ride the thunder that rumbles through my soul. Because by the grace of God, I go. And that, as Roosevelt notes, it's easy to be the cynic. It's easy to tear others down. It's easy to sneer and think of that sneer as a virtue, as a sign of your own strength, of your own courage. That's the tragedy of a cynic. They think they know something about something and they don't. They believe that they believe something about something, but they don't believe anything. Because as he wrote, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride and cynicism. And there are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. That is the world in which we live at present. That is our society at present. And it doesn't appear like it's going away anytime soon. So either those of us who embody that courage, who seek to create rather than to tear down, if we don't stand fast, even when the storms of life overtake our heart, overtake our homes, our communities, even when it overtakes our nation, if we don't stand fast, if we don't stand firm against the storm of cynicism and the destructive and twisted pride of the cynics, then there is no hope for our children, for the future, for anything. And so if you are a believer, believe boldly and courageously. If you are a fighter, fight. Fight boldly and courageously. If you are a lover, love boldly and courageously. But also recognize at the same time that there is going to be a deafening roar of cynics who will attempt to knock you down and keep you there, who will attempt to tear you to pieces and delete and cancel you simply because you are a mirror that reminds them of their own weakness and twisted pride and the very fact that they believe in nothing and therefore they have become nothing. You are being criticized by people who are nothing. Your beliefs and your values are being attacked by people who know nothing, believe nothing, and are nothing. So be kind to them, but be strong. Be charitable, but be bold. Be understanding, but exhibit courage in the face of their shouts and their threats and their attacks. And if you're interested... Go read Teddy. Go read the speech. Attack it. Get it. Get all of it. Because it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's encouraging. And it's something that I think we can all benefit from reading. Maybe every year, if not every other year. But remember, as Caitlin Moran said, if we allow ourselves to become victims of cynicism, if we give in to that cynicism that prevails in our culture today, it scours our society, our communities, our homes, and our hearts like a bleach and wipes out millions of these small seedling ideas that grow and produce the fruit of courage and boldness, <coughs> of bravery, of creativity, of belief. So don't give in to the queer and cheap temptation to be a cynic. But instead recognize that if you're in the arena, I'm there with you, shoulder to shoulder, as are others. We're in there together. We're in this together. That's what this podcast is for, to let you know that you're not alone. 
You're not the only person going through this right now. You're not the only person who's felt these things before. You're not the only person that struggles to believe. You're not the only person who's gone through self-doubt and pain. You're not the only person who's want to sit down and quit and give up. That's normal. Because you're fighting a great battle. You're fighting for yourself, for the future of our children, for the future of our society. That's what you're doing. That's heroic. That is legendary, even if no one recognizes it or acknowledges it. Because you are part of a great, grand tradition that stretches back into prehistory of heroes and fighters who stood up and held the line against the enemy, who would not allow the sneers and the criticisms the weakness and the laziness of those who wish to destroy and tear down all that is good and right and true. You are a part of those myths and legends. You are the new world hero stories that have yet to be written. And maybe it's someone you know that writes that story. Maybe it's your children or grandchildren that will write that story. Maybe you will go down into your grave and no one will write your story. But you know, you know that the cause that you took up was heroic. That what you accomplished and achieved in this life with the help of God is the stuff of legends. Because that's who you emulate. Those are your examples. Those are your spiritual fathers and mothers and mentors. So hold the line. Don't give up. Face the storm. Ride the thunder. Be a hero. Peace.